Hey there, Cross Connection. It's good to see you guys. My name is Jason. I'm the Family Ministries Pastor here at Cross Connection Church, and it is my privilege today to share with you out of Nehemiah chapter 11. In order to start there, though, we need to set a little bit of backdrop here. Um, where we are currently in the book of Nehemiah, the work has largely been done. When you started Nehemiah, there was a temple, but there was no walls. And Jerusalem was, you know, able to be pillaged by whoever was riding by. There was no defenses. There was no protection. It was in a very vulnerable state. This broke Nehemiah's heart when he heard about it. And then when the king asked him why he was upset, he threw up the prayer and said, okay, Lord, here we go. And told him what was going on. The king, knowing Nehemiah, knowing his heart, valuing Nehemiah in his service, said, uh, okay, yeah, you can go take care of that, and what do you need? And resourced him and sent him out. Um, all kinds of uh, different issues arose, problems here, problems there, stuff back and forth. Long story short, the walls are finished at this point. And what we know is that the city walls are rebuilt. Jerusalem is now safer than it's ever been in a long time, in probably about 80 years. The infrastructure is there, but the most pressing need currently is for people to live in Jerusalem. Now remember, nobody wanted to live in Jerusalem prior to this because it was completely unprotected. And it was basically you know, open to attack from all of the surrounding areas who frankly enjoyed its weakness, who, who found value in keeping Jerusalem utterly defenseless. But now Jerusalem has defenses. It has walls. They're up. They are ready. But like all of us know, if you just leave something alone and empty, it falls apart. Things fall apart over time. So Nehemiah here is going to gather the people and they have a choice to make. Do I stay or do I go? Do I stay in my town on my street or do I go and live in Jerusalem? It's a pretty big decision. It's a life altering decision. How should they make a decision like this? Now, oftentimes when we make decisions, we'll do things like listing pros and cons, flipping a coin. Sometimes if we feel like it's a particularly important, big issue, we'll do it through prayer and fasting and things like that. Um, things that I have found to be helpful in making decisions and in making godly decisions is a couple of things we'll go through here. First of all, we need to define the decision. Because a lot of times there's like a vague thing, but we don't know what exactly we need to decide on. So we need to define what that decision is. What is actually being asked of me here? Because sometimes we don't know. Sometimes we're offered opportunities that are open-ended, that are not well-defined. It's like, hey, you want to do this? It's like, well, what, what is that? And then we have to look at, is this a valid ask? Part of the definition is, is this something even valid to ask of me? Um, if you're married and somebody says, of the opposite sex, says, hey, uh, you want to go out and grab a drink on Friday? That's not a valid ask. That's already off the table by virtue of previous decisions. So we need to decide, is this valid? And then also a helpful one is, what is the duration of this decision? Is this a decision where this is going to be for a day, for a week, for a month? Those are all important parts of defining that decision. And then once we defined it, we need to look at, is there a clear right and wrong? Am I being asked to violate God, God's will as revealed in Scripture? If I am, that's an easy decision to make because it's a no. If it says in Scripture I shouldn't do this, then it's easy for me to say, to, to say, oh, I won't do this. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's more difficult because there's sometimes that, you know, 
we don't have clear understanding. Um, another question to ask is, am I being asked to do something that will harm me or my family? We don't want to cause harm to the people around us. Sometimes the harm is going to happen whether we do it or don't. Sometimes, you know, there's, there's all kinds of layers with all of these things. Another question I'd like to ask, am I asked to, be, do, am I asked to do something that will glorify God and extend his kingdom? Because if I'm asked to do something that's going to glorify God and extend his kingdom, that's going to carry more weight for me than something that's just going to help, you know, build a business or, you know, make me a little more comfortable or whatever it is. And then another question that we need to ask, besides the defining the decision and is there a clear right or wrong, another one is, am I equipped for what is being asked of me? Am, am I even remotely able to do this. You know, if, I, if somebody offers me the option of, say, operating a nuclear plant, I'm going to go, you know, it's an interesting thought. I have no training. <laughs> I have no business operating that. If somebody comes to me and says, hey, we'd like you to pilot this flight for us, I, I don't know how to fly a plane. I am not qualified for that. So am I equipped for what's being asked for me? Am I disqualified from certain things. There are things that I can either have in my past or in my personality or in my current life state that disqualify me from certain decisions. Another sub question to that is, do I have the know-how or am I teachable? Is this something that I can learn? Um, in 2020, a lot of our roles changed here at Cross Connection Church among the staff. Uh, we had to learn how to do new things and do different things and do things differently. We had to learn how to, like we're doing right now, teach to a camera and not to a group of people. Uh, Nick Burt had to learn how to record, produce, upload, all of the things involved in taking our sermon and providing it to our people because we, weren't ha we didn't have the option of speaking face to face. So I don't just have to, I mean, it's not a question of, do I automatically know how to do this? Sometimes it's, can I learn this? Am I teachable? Sometimes the question is, am I available or can I become available? Some decisions require us to make changes in our lives that, to make ourselves available of them. Um, am I going to be a blessing or a burden? And that's a question we have to look at too, because there are some opportunities that we're not suited for that if we take those opportunities, it's going to make us more of a burden than a blessing in that, in that situation. These are all questions we have to weigh. These are questions that likely would have been going through the minds of the people as they're looking at living in Jerusalem. Um, part of them, am I going to be a blessing or a burden? Am I somebody who's easy to work with? Am I somebody who can assimilate into an existing system? Or am I somebody who has to have everything done my own way? Uh, do I tend to take up an inordinate amount of time on my own issues rather than the mission? Sometimes when we ask these questions about opportunities, it will reveal things in ourselves that we need to change or we need to do differently or personality quirks or defects or whatever you want to call them that we have to be aware of and that we have to actually work against. So if I find that I'm somebody who has to have everything my own way, maybe I need to put myself in situations where I have less of my own way, where I have to assimilate. Um, if I find I'm, that's, I'm somebody that, that ends up taking the lion's share of time and attention away from a mission, that tells me something about myself. 
Another big question to ask, what are the consequences of saying yes or no? What is this going to do? You know, what, if I say yes to this, what's the result? But also sometimes, what's the result of me saying no? Is me saying no to this opportunity going to shut doors to other opportunities that might be God-glorifying and better? How is this going to affect, part of the consequences of saying yes or no, how is this going to affect my time, my treasure, my family, those kind of things. We have to weigh all of these different things. Um, another question is, what happens if this need is not met? What happens if I am given this opportunity and this need is not met? What are the repercussions of that? Can I sleep at night walking away from this decision? Because there are certain decisions I've seen in my own life where the decision is offered to me and my first inclination was, no, no, no way, no, not going to happen. And yet God has a way of sometimes waking us up in the middle of the night going, can you really say no to this? Ugh. And then there's the final question that I like to think about, am I called to this? Is this something that I'm called to do? Now, in my life, some people... They hear, when they experience a calling, it is like, you are going to do this. I don't get that. For me, throughout my life and throughout my journey, calling has almost always been disguised as opportunity. There's an opportunity, a door is open, and when I walk through that door and look backwards after a while, I can see God having a calling on my life to do this and to do this and to do this. But I never got that audible, you are going to do this. For me, calling has almost always been disguised as opportunities. Now, we have these questions. We have a lot of things we can think about, a lot of things that we can ponder, a lot of things like this. A lot of these things probably going through the heads of the people in Jerusalem as they're trying to decide whether or not they're going to move into the city. But... Just for fun, let's throw the biggest monkey wrench in the world in the middle of all of this stuff. Which brings us to point one on your outlines, if you're taking notes. Our perspective limits our understanding, which affects our choices. Our perspective limits our understanding, which affects our choices. With that in mind, let's pray. <laughs> Lord, as we... Uh, as we look at your word today, I pray that you would speak to us, Lord, as we think about decisions, as we ponder decisions, Lord, as we weigh right and wrong, as we weigh um, opportunities, advantages, disadvantages, Lord, as we look at all these things, we understand that our perspective is not your perspective. We all understand that, Lord, I think in a limited sense, Lord, I pray that you would help us to, to understand what it is to follow you with the choices that we make. So Lord, as we go through your word today, I pray that you would speak to us and that you would give us wisdom and discernment on how best to make decisions and what to do once we've made them. So Lord, help us to be glorified or help us to glorify you, Lord, in how we do this. Lord, help us to make wise decisions. Help us to grow closer to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. All right, so point one, just to reiterate, our perspective limits our understanding, which affects our choices. Absolutely, our perspective, how we see things, is going to change our understanding, and the amount that we understand helps us to make decisions. Well, if we find that we don't understand very much, it's really hard to make those decisions. Um, 
We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter, chapter 11, but for a little bit, we're going to float through Genesis. And we're going to start in Genesis 37. You don't have to turn there because we are taking a 747 level view of the life of somebody who illustrates a lot of these things to us. In Genesis chapter 37, we meet a fellow named Joseph. Joseph is 17 years old when we meet him in scripture. Joseph is his dad's favorite. Dad loved him more than the rest of his brothers, of who he had many. Um, this, because he was dad's favorite, his brothers, there was animosity. The Bible says they actually hated him. And Joseph had a dream. Now, Joseph's dream was both prophetic and truthful. Everyone understood exactly what Joseph's, mean, Joseph's dreams meant. He told the truth and he was hated even more because of it. See, Joseph had a dream that when interpreted showed that originally his brothers would bow down before him. And then another dream showed that not only his brothers, but his father and his mother would bow down before him. Now remember, Joseph is the baby of the family. Joseph was born to his father's old age. Joseph 17, his other brothers are likely 10 plus years older than him. Now, who in their 20s or 30s wants to hear from a 17-year-old saying, yeah, I had this awesome dream where you guys were all bowing down before me. Yeah, so it did not help his relationship with his brother. It says they, his brothers, they said they hated him even more. Um, and we could debate the wisdom of Joseph sharing his dream. We don't know if it God was God meant for him to share it or if it was just for Joseph. We don't have the information to look at that. Sometimes we assign value without having the understanding. And that's part of the problem with having a lack of perspective is that we can assign value to things where we don't know enough to, to say what the values were. So we could look at this and say, well, Joseph was kind of a snotty kid and he's telling people about these dreams. And Joseph may have been following the prompting of God to share his prophetic dream. We don't know that, so it's hard for us to decide whether that was wise or not. We're going to see another one of those right here because Joseph's father sent Joseph to check up on his older brothers. His older brothers were out working with the flocks in different, you know, in a pastures far away. And so his father sent Joseph in his special coat, his special coat, which likely indicated that he was of a supervisory status, that he was management, not labor. He his father sent him out to check up and see if the brothers were where they were supposed to be. So he goes to check up on that and he's supposed to come back and report. So already you have one brother who's despised by the others and now he's being given the job of go observe them and come back and report to me and tell me if they're doing good or doing bad or whatever, not going to help him endear him to his brothers. So he sent up to check up on his brothers and report back. His brothers see him coming from a distance after he went to look where they were supposed to be and the brothers weren't there. So he asked around, figured out where they were at. And so as he's going there, his brothers see him and they start to plan to kill him. This is not normal sibling rivalry. There's a whole nother level here. I had, I have three, two brothers. I have two brothers, two sisters. Um, there was a certain amount of rivalry, not a whole lot, but I never planned to kill any of them. This is a whole nother level. They're, they're plotting to kill their brother. Um, so they decide that they're going to take him and for the meantime, they're going to throw him in a pit. Now this is a cistern. It's a probably 15 feet deep hole with smooth sides, normally where water's kept. He's down there and he's stuck. One brother 
it says, intends to go back later and get him. Now, he's down there in the hole, um, just following his father's instructions, and this is where it's brought him. Another brother sees a caravan coming of slavers and says, hey, we shouldn't be guilty of killing our brother. Let's just sell him into slavery, because somehow that's a better option. So they sell Joseph into slavery. They take the robe, the, the, the coat, the coat that's commonly called the coat of many colors, um, might be better translated a coat with long sleeves. Um, they take his coat, they throw him in the hole, they bloody his coat, and they give that back to his father, saying, look, an animal must have killed him. And his father was heartbroken. But see, their hatred for their brother superseded their desire to honor their father. So they give him that. Joseph, in the meantime, is taken down to Egypt and is sold to a man named Potiphar. Well, Joseph finds favor with Potiphar because Joseph works hard, is honest. Potiphar develops trust for him and gives him a higher and higher position in his house. Everything looks good. Everything is going wonderfully. Joseph is found faithful, but then Joseph or Potiphar's wife shows up and she's developed an eye for Joseph, who at this point is, you know, young teen or his older teens, 18, maybe 20, somewhere around there. She sees him and says, you sleep with me. And Joseph's like, no way. There's no way I'm going to do this. She grabs his garment. He wriggles out of it and runs away. And now for the second time, his garment is used to tell a lie about him. Originally, it was his coat of many colors that was given to his father. Look, oh, look, all the blood. He must have been killed. This time, Potiphar's wife has this and holds it up and says, he tried to attack me. He was going to rape me, which was not true, but that's her story. So Potiphar goes, whoa, uh, no. And he throws Joseph in prison. So Joseph, having done nothing wrong of his own, is now in prison. And there Joseph sits in prison. And while he's in prison, he's found faithful. He's following the way that God has told him to live. God gives him favor with the jailer in this case. And pretty soon, Joseph is now trusted in the prison. Now, I don't think prison ever throughout history has been a place where you find a lot of trust in others. But here Joseph finds favor again. He's found faithful in prison. And as such, he's there helping the, what do we call it, the high dollar or the high value or the important prisoners. Because Pharaoh has a, his chief baker and his chief cupbearer thrown into prison. While they're there, they both have dreams. And Joseph goes... Well, tell me your dreams, and, and maybe I can help you. I'm, I'm a bit of a dream interpreter myself. So they tell him the dream, and he tells the cupbearer, dude, your dream means in three days, you're going to be restored to your position. You're going to be serving Pharaoh, and life is going to be good. And then the baker goes, ooh, 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 I had a dream. I had a dream. And the baker tells him his dream. And lo and behold, Joseph tells the baker, 
Yeah, your dream's not so good. Um, your dream means in three days, Pharaoh's going to kill you and, and birds are going to eat your flesh. Like, oh. Well, Joseph also tells the cupbearer, hey, when you get out of here, when, when, when you're going back to serve Pharaoh, remember me. Remember that I'm down here. I didn't do anything wrong. I'm not supposed to be here. Remember me down here? And the cupbearer is taken out and put back in Pharaoh's service. And the baker is killed. And the cupbearer, it says in scripture, forgot about Joseph. And so once again, now Joseph here is in prison through no fault of his own. He's done this great service. And there he is, forgotten. Until Pharaoh starts having these really weird, troubling dreams. And his cupbearer is there, and his cupbearer goes, Ooh, 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 I know a dream guy. I know a dream guy. There was a guy when I was in prison, and he told me my dream, and he told me what it meant, and everything came true. And Pharaoh goes, Huh. Well, go get him. So they get Joseph. They bring him up out of the pit. They clean him up. They cut his hair. They dress him up all really nice, and they send him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells him, he says, Hey, I hear you can interpret dreams. And he goes, well, I can't interpret dreams, but sometimes God gives me insight. Sometimes God will tell me, and then I'll tell you everything I find out. So Pharaoh tells Joseph his dreams, and his dreams are weird. There's skinny cows, there's fat cows, there's lots of grain, there's a little bit of grain, there's all these things happening. Well, Joseph explains to the Pharaoh, well, there's going to be seven fat years. There's going to be seven years where it's really good, but after that, there's going to be seven years of abject famine, so bad that everybody's going to forget the years of plenty and just be trying to survive through it. And he tells Pharaoh, if you, if you want to mitigate this, you need to find somebody who's going to take those fat years and stretch them out over the lean years. And Pharaoh's like, where am I going to find anybody like that? And he goes, well, God told you the dream. God gave you the insight. Tell you what you're going to be in charge of everything. He says, you're going to be in charge of everything up to me. The only thing over you in this, Pharaoh says, is going to be me. Otherwise, you are in charge of everything in Egypt. Now, imagine that. Joseph has gone from prison till in a matter of maybe hours, is now the number two ruler over all of Egypt with authority over everything. Joseph at this point, it says, is 30 years old. So Joseph has spent about half his life as a slave and in prison, and now at 30 is set over all of Egypt. So over the next seven years, Joseph stores up so much grain, it says in scripture, that it could not be measured. He stored up everything. Joseph then as the famine strikes, Joseph leads Egypt through the famine and he buys everything from everyone for the grain. So Joseph is exchanging grain for property, for livestock, for everything. And Egypt is building up this massive pile of wealth. The Pharaoh is because of the wisdom of Joseph and because of the dreams and because of all the things that led up to this. And lo and behold, in the middle of this, the famine is not just in Egypt, but the famine is everywhere around there. 
So Jacob, Joseph's fathers and his brothers are sitting at home and Jacob's like, hey, um, we got nothing. And you guys are just sitting here staring at me and staring at each other. They have grain in Egypt. Go down to Egypt and buy some grain. Go get us food. So Joseph's brothers show up. And who do they see but Joseph? And Joseph's there staring at his brothers and they can't, they don't recognize him because he looks Egyptian. And he, Joseph does a lot of different things. And if you want to read through the story, it is phenomenal. It is amazing. And there's all kinds of insight to pull out of it. Um, but long story short, Joseph's brothers bow down before him. And then at one point, Joseph reveals who he is and they are weeping and crying and apologizing and all of these things. And then he says, go get my dad. And so Jacob and all his family go down to Egypt to live with Joseph. Now, one thing that you want to look at here, when it says that Joseph was going to eat with his brothers, it said that his brothers had to eat separately from the Egyptians because the Egyptians found the Israelites like reprehensible, like they were dirty and unclean and we don't eat with people like that. Now, we've seen that behavior from the Israelites dealing with Gentiles, but here we see it with the Egyptians dealing with the Israelites. There's like this, uh, there's this level of racism that's like, Ooh, you guys are gross, we're not eating with you, which God uses to their benefit because when Pharaoh finds out that this is Joseph's family, he's like, dude, this is your family? We're going to set you up in the very, where, where do you want to go? And they're like, well, we're shepherds. And, you know, the Egyptians did not like shepherds. They thought that was a disgusting job, was dealing with sheep. Sheep were gross. They worshiped cows, hated sheep. I don't know. It's a weird dichotomy. But what happened is they gave them the land of Goshen to go live in because it was ideal for shepherds. So the Jews were still separate from the Egyptians and God uses all of this stuff. So they go into Egypt as a family and eventually when they come out of Egypt, they're a nation. So the question to ask through this or the question that I was thinking about, is God with Joseph through all this? Absolutely he is. God is with Joseph every step of the way. Does Joseph think so? I don't know. It's got to be hard to go from your, fa your father's favorite to slavery to, hey, things are going well, and all of a sudden you've done nothing wrong, and your boss's wife decides to come on to you and then spread lies about you, and all of a sudden now you're in prison, and you work your way up in prison, and like, hey, here I am, still have done nothing wrong, and you, you help out this really you know, powerful guy, and he totally forgets that you helped him out, and then all of a sudden you go through, and like, now I'm in charge of, of everything. Now, if we look at the, all the decisions that are building up in here, how many of them would we say, oh, that was a godly decision? Probably not a lot of them. And yet we can see God's intent looking backwards. And what is, where's God going with all of this? Well, God saves his people. He saves the world through, through Egypt. He creates a superpower out of, G, out of Egypt. They buy up everything and all the surrounding wealth. He uses Egypt to grow the Israelites into a great nation, preserving them as a nation inside of Egypt. Then he sends his people out of Egypt. And at the same time he sends them out of Egypt, he breaks the back of the Egyptian dynasty. He scares the surrounding nations. He gives his people the promised land and they know that these are the people, this is their God destroyed Egypt. So they're afraid before them. He sends a fear before them. 
they get into the promised land. He raises up a king named Saul. He raises up a king named David. He prepares a girl named Mary and a man named Joseph to raise a boy named Jesus who saves his people from their sins, who dies on a cross, who rises again on the third day, ascends into heaven, and he's preparing the world for his return and his redeeming of all creation. See, we tend to see our decisions as individual choices. And we look at Joseph's life, and it's easy to break it up into we have the pit we have the pit period of his life, we have the prison period of his life, and then we have the palace period of his life. And it makes it really easy and it's like nice for alliteration because you're using three Ps there. But see, we see these as separate choices and separate distinct opportunities. But see, all this stuff is linked. It's all woven together like a tapestry that God is putting together all the way back from in the garden and forward to the return of Christ and his kingdom in the future. See, we have a perspective problem. We see a tiny portion of it. We don't see the entire picture. We see this minuscule bit that we're involved in and the importance to us is massive. But if we pan back and we look at the entire picture from the Garden of Eden till God comes back and redeems his creation, our, our part is so tiny, it seems some totally insignificant. Um, my wife and I started fostering years ago, and we had an opportunity where we fostered one child, and then a sibling came into the system, and they asked, "Hey, do you want to keep? We try to. We want to keep both of them together. Would you guys take?" That? And we're like, "Yeah, okay, sure." So we went from, you know, a family of seven to a family of eight. Yeah, to a family of eight in in, in the period of you know, a phone call. Well, we didn't have a vehicle for eight. And so we thought, okay, we, we need to figure something out. And because we were doing the two car thing where anywhere you go as a family, you're taking two cars and the kids were all younger and there's car seats and all this stuff involved and it. It just was not working. So we're like, we need to buy something bigger. And it made perfect sense. We need to get something bigger so the family can ride together. So we went out and bought the biggest production vehicle ever made, bought a Ford Excursion, loved it. Loved everything about it. And then the engine died. And so we had to replace the engine. Life is good again. And then the transmission goes. And they're like, oh. And now we got to replace the transmission. And you start thinking, well, that must have been a bad decision to buy the excursion because we've had so many problems. But I don't have the perspective to make that judgment. I can look at a couple of instances and go, well, it cost me a lot of money. Is money the most important thing? Is there something else going on there that I don't understand? And so it, things that seemed so monumental because of the cost and because of the impact on me, when I step back and look, they're so utterly inconsequential. And yet at the same time, in the moment, in the, in the time frame, I still have to try to make a decision, but my perspective is so small. I have such a perspective problem. How do I make a godly decision when, when my perspective is so, so tight, so small? Well, put yourself in Joseph's shoes. At what point did Joseph understand what God was doing? At what point was he there going, I get this. I am in this pit being sold into slavery because God has a plan. That's probably not what he's thinking. He's probably freaking out. 
And when the slavery thing starts to work out all right, he's trusted, he's got a position of authority inside Potiphar's house, life's going pretty good, and all of a sudden, Potiphar's wife starts tells lies to her husband, and all of a sudden, now he's in prison. Like, I, 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 I didn't do anything wrong, and now I'm in prison. But I understand that God has a place. It's probably not what he's thinking. Now, we would be tempted when we get to the palace, and all of a sudden, we're the number two people over everything. Now I see what God was doing. He wanted to make me almost king. That's what he wanted all along. But even that, the perspective is so tiny, because... He doesn't understand that God is using Joseph. He doesn't understand that God is using him to not just save a nation of Egypt, not even to save his family. He doesn't understand that going forward from him, he's going to bring his, God is going to bring his only son to the earth to live as one of us and die after living a perfect life to pay for our sins. Joseph has no concept of that because his perspective is so tiny. At what point does he understand what God's doing? I'm gonna say he didn't ever grasp what God was doing. He could see parts by looking backwards. At some point when he's there with his father and the, his whole family is safe, he could look back and go, ah. And he does at one point say, what you meant for evil, he told his brothers, God used for good. But even then he doesn't see the grandeur of God's plan. But the thing that we see about Joseph through all this is that he was faithful. Well, what does that mean for us? How do we make decisions? All the previous methods we discussed in the beginning, those are all fine. But the thing that we need to remember is that we utterly lack perspective on what our decisions lead to. And even if they were right or wrong, was I right to buy the excursion? I don't know. Was I wrong to buy the excursion? I don't know. Is there a right and wrong in that? Or is it just A or B? I don't know. So how then do we even proceed when our perspective is so, so small? Point two in your outline. Faithfulness is vitally important because we have a limited perspective. You see, once we make a decision... We make the very best decision that we can, no matter what occurs, we need to be faithful to God and live in a manner that honors Him, whether it's in the pit or whether it's in the prison or whether it's in the palace, because God is with us in all those locations and God calls us to be faithful in all circumstances. He doesn't say, be faithful to me while you're healthy. It's the same way in marriage vows when we say in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad in poor and rich. We're called to be faithful to God in all situations. We're called to be faithful with God when we stand over the casket of a child that we love. And we're called to be faithful to God when, say, we win the Powerball lottery and we have $68 billion to play with. We're called to be faithful in all those situations. Well, Knowing God and his character as revealed in his word helps us to hold to him in those hard times. If we know who he is, when things are bad, we can cling to that. That's why it's so important that we spend time in the word, that we spend time getting to know who our savior is so that when things are really bad, maybe all we can say is, Jesus help me. 
but we know that he's a God that's with us. We know he's a God that suffered and that suffers with us. When we know that, we can cling to that. Even when our perspective is so small that we have no idea except that it seems like everything is terrible. But I have a Savior that I can cling to. So now that we know everything that there is to know, let's open to Nehemiah chapter 11 and get started, as it were. Um, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, it says, Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots for one out of ten to come and live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the other nine-tenths remained in their towns. The people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. We're going to tear these two verses up a little bit here. So, Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 1, Now the leaders of the people stayed in Jerusalem. See, the leaders had to stay by virtue of their position. See, the leaders have an obligation. Leadership comes with an obligation. The city needed leadership, and the leaders were there. And leadership comes from a couple of things. Leadership comes from calling, which, as I have said before, it's often camouflaged as opportunity. So sometimes when the opportunity is knocking and people are presenting us an opportunity, it's actually God's calling on our life. We have to be careful with that. When I first stepped into ministry, I did not step into teaching ministry. I did not step into leadership. I did not, you know, come in with a vast Bible knowledge. I started as somebody who figured, yeah, I can, I can go sit in the parking lot on Saturday nights and you know, Wednesday nights because I can listen to podcasts way back then on my iPod, <laughs> back before iPhones or any of that stuff. It's like I can sit out there and I can listen to podcasts and I can listen to sermons and I can walk around with my big obnoxious bright orange vest and a flashlight and make sure people don't steal cars. That was my big jump into ministry. But you know what? That opportunity was presented and I took it and that was God. I can look back and see that's part of God's calling on my life. I didn't realize it at the time. It just looked like an opportunity and I felt like I should do something. So I started there. Well, it progressed from parking lot ministry to helping out in to ushering and then helping out from ushering, helping out in the youth ministry and from helping out in the junior high side, I began to teach junior high. And then from teaching junior high, I went on to, to lead our youth ministry as high school pastor. And then fast forward, you know, many years. And now I'm family ministries pastor where the, the scope has gone from not just from the cars in the parking lot to not just ushering in the sanctuary to all these, it keeps getting it kept getting expanded to different things to now my role is to try to pastor people from infancy all the way to families, which is a pretty wide net, but it's been a long time coming. All of those things, I never got an audible call from God going, you are going to do this. What I was presented with was opportunities, opportunities that I had to weigh, but I can look back and see that those opportunities we're calling camouflaged. Um, leadership not just, doesn't just come from calling, it also comes from availability. Am I available to do this? And there was a point in my life where I had to look at it and go, I'm being presented with an opportunity, but I don't have the availability for it. I was volunteering as high school pastor and the, the role 
was demanding more from me than I could give because I have my nine to five that I'm working and I have to raise my family and my family has to come first. And this, this role is going to requiring more of me that requires more than I can give. I don't have the availability for this. So I went in to quit and Miles, you know, when I met to tell him that I was going to quit, he asked me if I wanted a job. See, once again, my availability was a problem until it wasn't, then it changed. And once again, calling camouflage is opportunity. Now, also leadership, not just calling, not just availability, but ability. Now, ability doesn't mean you know everything that you need for the role. A lot of times, ability is a teachable spirit where you're willing to learn. Because a lot of times, we don't know what a role requires until we're in it. And all of a sudden, you realize, I have to figure out how to do this. I have to figure out how to do that. I have to figure out, how do I talk to a high schooler or a junior higher and their family when they've tried to commit suicide. I didn't know that, but it's something that I had to learn. So ability is required, but a lot of times ability is just a teachable spirit where you're willing to learn things. And then the other thing that I found what leadership comes from is calling, availability, ability, and qualification. And sometimes it's more not disqualification. It's not that all of a sudden I was qualified, but there are certain things that made me qualified because I was not disqualified, if that makes sense. There are certain things that will disqualify you from certain roles in leadership. If you are not an American citizen, you cannot become president of the United States because it requires that you be an American-born citizen. There are certain things that qualify or disqualify you for leadership. Now, leadership comes with several things. It, doesn't, it comes from calling ability, availability and qualification, but it comes with certain things like benefits. Leadership does come with benefits. Um, one thing I'm fond of telling people sometimes is that it's good to be the boss. Um, there's long hours. There's lots of work. There's the fact that you get to be a target for uh, public ire when people are upset. Um, there's a whole other level of public scrutiny. Your family becomes targets for people. Um, you're always on call forever. 24-7, as Christian leadership, yeah, you are always on call and you have to be ready at a moment's notice. Now, those are dubious benefits, but there are other benefits. You get to work with Jesus and you get to see people's lives changed. You get to be part of an eternal endeavor. My kids get to see, you know, behind the curtains, as, as it were, they get to see what it's like to be a family that serves in leadership. Um, they have opportunities to go places. I've had opportunities to go places and do things that otherwise I wouldn't have had. My previous job was never going to take me to places like Paraguay or Mozambique or you know, Houston, Texas. Or, but see, I've been able to do those things. I've been able to do some of those things with my kids, which is such an amazing blessing of being in leadership. It, it's good to be in leadership. But it also comes with responsibilities. It's not just benefits, there's also responsibilities. Um, there's a conduct that you have to adhere to as a leader, and that's anywhere that you're a leader, there's a different code of conduct between being a leader and not. There's a spiritual responsibility that you have as a Christian leader. There is um, a certain level of perception management. You have to think not just is this right or wrong, but what is this going to look like to people? Are they going to see this and go, I can't believe and misinterpret things. So you have to be careful with those things. Um, you have to treat, Jesus, treat people like Jesus wants you to treat them even after they've hurt you or hurt your spouse or hurt your kids. 
There's certain responsibilities. There's also accountability that goes along with benefits and responsibilities. There's accountability because it is a higher calling. To be a leader is to set yourself up for another level of accountability. We hold leaders accountable for things that we don't hold other people to by virtue of the position. Now there's pitfalls also. Um, because you're in a position of respect, you have a placement in people's lives. You, you get to know details about families. So you have to adhere to standards of confidentiality. There's temptation. There's temptation to, to feel like, well, <laughs> I'm so much better than certain people. And it's easy to fall into those things, but we have to, we have that pitfall. So you have to, to watch for that. And in this case, in Nehemiah, we see that some of the things that are not, there are some things that are not optional for those in leadership. Some of these things are required. They are staying in Jerusalem. The leaders don't have an option to go somewhere else. They're staying. Scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Required. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. It's required that if you're going to be a steward, if you are going to be in leadership, if you are going to be in some ways a follower of Jesus Christ, because that puts you in a position of leadership for the world, it's required that you be found faithful. Faithfulness is a requirement. So point three in your outline, if you're taking notes, God values and God requires faithfulness. God values and requires faithfulness. And the rest of the people at the end of that verse in verse one here, cast lots for one out of 10 to come live in Jerusalem, the holy city. So they have the leadership and now they have the rest of the people and they cast lots for one person out of 10 to go live in Jerusalem. They had some volunteers, but they didn't have enough. So they start drafting people. One out of 10, congratulations, you are going to live in Jerusalem. Which brings us to a question, is casting lots a valid way of making a godly decision? And what if we did that this morning? What if we decided that we were going to roll the dice and everybody's assigned a number and we're going to roll. And if it comes up as a two, guess what? You are going to be now part of security ministry. Congratulations. Fantastic. You get to serve there. We might have questions about that. Like, well, I, I, I'm not suited to that. I didn't volunteer for that. So is casting lots a valid way of making godly decisions? If I was going to categorize it, I would say that godly wisdom is the very best way to make a decision. If knowing God's character and his nature is revealed in scripture, if that answers my question on the decision, that's the very best. If I'm still having questions after godly wisdom, I can find godly counsel or good counsel. If it's a financial decision, I'm probably going to ask a financial guy. I'm probably not going to ask a pastor like, hey, what's the best way for me to invest this? Because that's not their skill set. But I'm going to ask somebody that I trust, what, what is a good way to do this? So if, if godly wisdom, if that doesn't answer the question, then I go to good counsel. If good counsel leaves, still leaves me with questions like, yes, you could do this or yes, you could do this, then I'm going to look at preference as a good tiebreaker. Is this something that I want to do? Is this something, if, the, if, if this is a yes, and this seems like a yes, and I've got to choose between the two, which one would I prefer? Because the thing that I prefer to do, I'm probably going to be better at. So 
preference is a good tiebreaker between godly wisdom and good counsel. If we still have yeses in there, um, if there's no preference or if they're equally, um, if they're equally bad decisions, like I don't really want to make either one, a coin flip is better than paralysis. A coin flip is better than just not making a decision. But the thing that we are required as followers of Jesus Christ in all of these things is to act faithfully. We have to act faithfully. Now we see the very end of the verse here, while the other nine tenths remained in their towns. So they're choosing one out of 10 to go to the city. The other nine tenths are going to go back in the towns. Now, are the other nine tenths less faithful or less worthy or less committed? I don't know. I do know that I sometimes have a tendency to judge people who do not serve in a way that I can see. I tend to look at them as less. But I also know that I have a pathetically narrow viewpoint from which to judge anyone. And I don't have any real perspective because I'm only one person and I, my perspective is so small that I have no right to judge people. I do know that God has called all of us to believe in him and that that belief demands action. I don't know if the nine tenths were less worthy than those that we know that they rolled the dice and one tenth went and nine tenths went home. And then we see in verse two here in chapter 11, the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. There is a blessing here we see for those who step up and volunteer. Those that didn't have to be drafted, but those that said, no, I'm going to live in Jerusalem. We know it's admirable to choose to step up, and we know it's admirable to answer the call to service. We see that in our own lives where we see somebody that, that volunteers and says, I'll do that. Here I am, send me, or I'll go, or even when you're sitting at home and you're like, man, I wish we had ice cream, and you've got you know, several adult children and everybody's looking around the room trying to decide if somebody's actually going to go and get it. And when one person says, okay, I will go pick it up. And everybody's like, yay! We, we know that it's admirable to step up and answer the call to service. Now, we also know that it's necessary. Somebody has to do it. There's the phrase, it's a dirty job, but someone's got to do it. Somebody has to step up and volunteer to live in Jerusalem. And we know that somebody did. We see the same thing around us. We know it's necessary for people to step into situations and, and do the work. And we also know that it's a sacrifice on some level. We know that there's a sacrifice. I'll tell you what, I, have, I am deeply involved in our children's ministry. Um, rebuilt it from the ground up after 2020, after we had our big, you know, everybody go home and stay home. When we relaunched, we changed how we did things. We rebuilt things. Um, I am intimately connected with that. And I know that there's a sacrifice. There are people who serve in children's ministry who give up not just their time at church. That's like the tip of the iceberg. There are people that serve throughout the week that put the curriculum together. There are people, the teachers get the curriculum emailed to them during the week and they're going through that and they're studying that and they're praying through it and they're trying to figure out how best do I apply this. There's there is a sacrifice on some level to anything we volunteer for. But sacrifice is not wrong and it's not bad. There's a sacrifice on some level no matter what we're serving in. We also know that sometimes these things get misused. We know that there's people that step into positions that volunteer for things that are not there because they want to glorify God. They're there for other reasons. So we know that sometimes that it is definitely misused. But the misuse by others doesn't invalidate the service of other people. 
when we see a famous pastor, you know, fail morally, that doesn't indict everybody. That doesn't invite, indict all pastors. The same way that when we see a left-handed man murder somebody, we don't look at all left-handed people and go, murderers. No. We know that a misuse by some does not invalidate the service of everyone, but we should learn from the mistakes and the misuse. We should learn from that and get better at what we do. And above all else, we need to be found faithful. You see, the remainder of this chapter is a long list of names. It lists those who chose to live in Jerusalem, the leaders, the volunteers, and those chosen by casting lots. It lists all those names. Now, we're not going to go through them, but they're there. And it's important to know that God found their service important enough that he recorded it in Scripture. He put them there. And if, if you would get there to heaven and we're hanging out there together and we're going, wait, wait, aren't you the guy from Nehemiah chapter 11? It mentions that you were um, the leader of the gatekeepers. And they might go, yeah, that's me. And we're like, dude. That's cool. You made it into the Bible. High five. Woohoo. Yeah. Um, we know that God found their service important enough that he recorded it in scripture. If you ever head down into uh, San Diego and you get down towards uh, Cabrillo Point, you're going to pass through Cabrillo National Cemetery. And as you drive through that, you see l just lines and lines and lines of white markers. And they are all there because it's important that we remember them. Now, individual names are important to a few people. Like when I went to Washington, D.C., when I was in, like, what was it, I think eighth grade, we, looked, we saw the Vietnam Memorial, and we saw the wall, and you see all the names, and it's like, whoa, that's crazy. And we absorb the importance of all of the names. But see, when my dad went, he was looking for a specific name, because that particular person was important to him. The individuals are important to a small group of people, but the, the larger list indicates a value and a sacrifice that we should all appreciate. This list in chapter 11, these are people that we should appreciate because they are the ones that stepped up when others didn't. They are those that decided that we are going to live in Jerusalem even though Jerusalem has been a target. Even though Jerusalem is maybe not entirely quite ready. We've got walls up, but we still have to, to, we still have to inhabit it. We still have to figure out the kinks. We still have to do the work. The fact that they're there is important. And the last question that I wanted to, to, to think about here, what if God is writing a record of our current events, what list would we be found on? What list would I, would I make it onto a list of these people did something important? Now, you don't have to be a pastor to make a list like that. You don't have to work in children's ministry. You don't have to work in security. You don't have to do some big giant thing. The most important thing out of all of these for anybody and everybody, but especially for those who, who claim the name of Christ, the question that we need to look at is, will I be found faithful? 
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we uh, close this out, Father God, I just want to be found faithful. And I pray, Lord, that that is the cry of all of our hearts this morning. Lord, that, that we would be found faithful. Lord, help us to, uh, to apply that to every aspect of, the, of our lives. Which is the choice that is most faithful? And when we made those choices, Father God, and it feels like some of them were great and some of them were tough and we don't know because our perspective is so small, help us to remain faithful whether it's horrible or whether it's wonderful. Lord God, we see the children of Israel routinely fail when things are great. Help us to remain faithful, Lord, when things are great in our lives. We see often that they turn to you, Jesus, when times get tough. Help us to be faithful when times are hard. Help us to be faithful, Lord, when it costs us nothing, and help us to be faithful when it costs us everything. Lord, help us to remain close to you. Jesus, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Go forth and be found faithful. God bless you guys.